believe the Bible. And it seems as if many Christians don't even read the Bible. In fact, a recent survey uh, showed this past year, the end of 2019, that out of all of those Christians that were surveyed, I don't remember the exact number, but there were thousands and thousands of Christians from around the country that were surveyed. And out of those, there was a very, very small percent of Christians that said that they study God's Word daily. And I would say, if, if I was the judge, my ruling would be that those so-called Christians don't really love God. And that may sound harsh to you. It may sound very harsh, but the reality is that we do what's important to us. We study, we read, we watch, we listen to, we engage with what matters to us. And for a large portion of, of Christendom, of Christianity, of Christians, to not be regularly in God's Word, that's, that's pretty sad. That's very sad, in fact. And, and, and it actually paints a very accurate picture of the world that we find ourselves living in right now in America. The professing church is more worldly. The professing church, instead of going into the world and proclaiming the gospel, is seeking how to bring the world into the church and look more like the world. And we've done all of those things and tried all this stuff at the expense of, I would say, our time with God in His Word. Now, God has spoken to us. And He has spoken through this text of Scripture. And we're going to see this week how important this Scripture really is. And when we say Scripture, we mean the Bible. We may say the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures. But the Scripture is what this is. And it comes from God. And we'll see that here in just a moment. And so this morning, we called our first, test, uh, our first uh, witness excuse me, to the stand. And our first witness gave testimony that science proclaims that the scriptures are real, right? So what was the one, just, just raise your hand so we don't all scream at the same time, but somebody, what was one of those points this morning that really kind of jumped out at you that you'd never really thought about, heard about, or considered before? One of the sciences, one of the proofs that shows that the Bible is real. Anybody? My, my favorite one is about the paths of the sea. I, I just think that one is just mind-boggling. Because it was very, very recently in the grand scheme of things when that was discovered. But that there are, there are currents and there are streams, there are paths that the sea must take. Yes, sir, back there, Monty. Uh, the, expansion of the, universe. the expansion of the universe. That's a good one, too. That, this, that, that space is actually like a sustenance. It's a, it's a fabric and it's being stretched out. And that there's more space here close to us than there is at the, ex, the far reaches of the universe. Because it's being stretched like a garment. What else? Anybody over here? Oh, yes sir, back there. My favorite is the sanitation one. Sanitation. Because it is even more recent than the discovery of the, uh, of the streams. Yeah. Because it's a recent finding. It's a recent yeah. Yeah, sanitation. Yes, ma'am. The quarantine. Yeah, that one. I figured someone would say that one right off the bat. So the quarantine, the fact that Leviticus talks about way before COVID-19 or even COVID-1, right? That quarantining the sick away from the healthy people is the way God had seen fit to protect us from spreading disease. Somebody over here. Anybody? Those are great answers right there. That's really good stuff. Yes, sir. Yeah, Casey, that's Mr. Casey. He's saying the number of stars in the sky. 
Um, they probably can't hear you, but he was mentioning this to me earlier. Used to, what was it, like 2,600 stars, I think they thought they could recognize and name. But recently, in recent time, we've discovered that there's not just 2,600 or even 26,000, 26 million. There are countless stars, just like the Bible said. But God knows how many there are because God made them. So that's a, that's a cool one, Casey. That's not one we mentioned this morning, but Casey's been studying that himself. Anything else? So that first, that first witness came to the stand this morning testifying, and that seems like a good testimony. It seems fitting that it helps us to prove that the Bible is trustworthy. But we're going to look at more of these the rest of this week. And so tonight's uh, witness that's coming to the stand is the testimony of the scribes. Now, a scribe is a person that writes something down. I know that's like mind-blowing right there, right? But that's what a scribe does. And so the scribes wrote the scripture. And so there's three things we're going to hear from the testimony of the scribes tonight. And the first one we're going to see is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's look at them. So follow along with me. It's kind of hard to hear it here, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. I was going to have some of you read it, but uh, maybe we'll have you come to the microphone another time. But just look at uh, 2 Timothy uh, verses, what did I say, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. A couple of words right there. All Scripture. What is that talking about? What is Scripture again? The Bible. So all of God's Word, all of God's Scripture, all of God's Bible is inspired by God. What does it mean that it's inspired by God? Does it mean that like uh, someone writes a really good love song? I was just so inspired by Becky's love, just the way she's loved me for these last 28 years or so. It, it just inspired me to write this really sappy love song. Is that what it means? No, what, the word inspired here is a word that means what? God breathed. God breathed. That's right. The, it's it's God breathed. It's breathed out by God. So the scriptures claim that they are the very word of God breathed out of God's very mouth. Now, later testimony, we're going to hear how God did that. But the scribes claimed, number one, that the scriptures were from God. It wasn't just something they thought of. It wasn't something they thought would sell good. Like, hey, let's write a number one seller. That's not what they were thinking about. They were writing down the words of God. And some of those words were literally written by the very hand of God. What am I speaking of? Jesus, the Bible. What is it? The Ten Commandments. Literally written on stone by God's hand. So that's a pretty amazing thing. But all of the scripture is breathed out by God. And so the scribes, their testimony is that they believe the scriptures come from God. Now we mentioned this morning that there are other so-called books that people claim are from God. We have the Quran, which has been renamed recently the Holy Quran, although there's nothing holy about it. It's literally supposed to be called the Generous Quran. That's the actual title of the book. But they're trying to deceive and make it seem more like the Holy Bible. But they claim their words are from God. But if you've ever studied the Quran, how many of you have studied actually the Quran? I know some of you have even done it with us at uh, Kapah before because uh, our friend Yusama Dakdok has come and shared and 
He's uh, translated it into English right out of the Arab, uh, uh, Arabic. And uh, so you've been able to read that and look. What I like about Usama's translation is that he, he adds commentary with it. So that some of the real archaic phrases and the, the things that may be hard to understand, he's actually explained those like down at the bottom, kind of like in a study Bible, okay? And so if, if you've ever really taken the time to look, even though the generous Quran is claimed to come from God through the Prophet Muhammad, it is full of things inside that would show that it contradicts itself. I mean, page after page after page after page of not just so-called contradictions, but just blatant factual contradictions. Many, many, many contradictions, but they claim it's from God. There are some evidences from these testimonies we're going to see that will help you to see what sets the Bible apart from something even like the generous Quran. And you'll see why those claims can't both be equally valid. But these folks, these scribes, claim that the Bible is from God. Look at, look at um, that verse again. Let's just think about a couple of other things here in this verse. I, just, I can't be still to, to just leave that on its stand. So look again. All Scripture, so all the Bible, inspired or breathed out by God, and is profitable. So it's good for us. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And here's why. So that the person who reads it, the godly person, be they man or woman, boy or girl, so that the person of God may be adequate. Now, when we think of the word adequate, we mean usually something we understand. It means, uh, uh, yeah, that'll do. Uh, we can just get by. It's adequate. It'll do, I guess. The word adequate here is not, does not mean that. This word comes from a Greek word that is uh, artios, artios. And so artios is the word that means thoroughly equipped. And so our English says adequate here, but what it literally means is so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? For every good work. So that what he's saying is that God's word, what these scribes say, that this comes from God and it's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that you person, you who read and study this Bible, these scriptures, will be thoroughly equipped for everything. Thoroughly equipped for everything. Now that's a big claim, isn't it? That's a huge claim. But that's the testimony of the authors of scripture. Let's look at another passage in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I love this passage. This is great. How many of you have read or heard the passage out of Timothy 3.16? A lot of people have heard and read and studied that one. Heard sermon after sermon. Not a whole lot of people preach on this one. <laughs> but check this out. The scribes claim that God's uh, the one who, who authored the Scriptures. So the Scriptures come from God. 1 Peter chapter... I'm sorry, I said 1 Peter? 2 Peter, thank you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Thank you. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. What the author Peter is saying here is that these words are the words of God. That the men who authored with their hands to put these words onto text or onto paper, vellum or parchment or, or whatever it might have been when they originally wrote these words down. They weren't the words of those men. God used those men. He used them to pen these words. But these words are from God. 
Moved by the Holy Spirit, these men spoke from God. And so it's all of the Scripture, that all that there's no prophecy of Scripture that is just up for grabs, up for interpretation. It could mean what we want it to mean. But all of these words came from God. Through men, but from God. Now, is God ever, does God ever contradict, contradict Himself in His Word that you know of? No. no, He doesn't. He doesn't. Is He ever um, confusing in His Word? He's really not. Now, there may be some things that are harder to understand than others, but if you study diligently, those things work themselves out pretty well. But God says what He wants to say. He means what He says. And He says it in a very specific way. And the way in which God says it is not up for debate. The content matter that God says is not up for debate. We often might hear something, and, and I'll take you back, um, oh, some 30 years ago, back when I was, well, it's, it's longer than that, 32 years ago, when I was at Lamar and Orange, okay? I had a teacher, my, uh, let's see, uh, Karen Priest. Any of you have Karen Priest for literature? Uh, Karen Priest for literature. Had her for British Lit and World Lit. She loved literature, and we read all the time. Well, the class was supposed to read all the time. Pastor Kevin didn't read all of his work all the time, but he was supposed to. But she loved literature, and on our exams, on our tests, like midterms and those sorts of things in college, she would have us interpret a poem, interpret some piece of literature to tell what we believe it's supposed to mean. Now, if we're telling, and, 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 and let me say that again so you get this. We're supposed to tell what we believe it's supposed to mean. Now, if that's really what she wants, then I'm supposed to tell her what I believe it's supposed to mean. Can I be wrong? I can't. If that's really the, if that's really the goal, it can mean anything I want it to mean. But that's not really what Karen Priest wanted. She wanted us to understand what the author was in, intending to convey. We were supposed to get that. But that's not what she asked. That's not how the exam was worded. So, so I challenged her on it. I still came up short. Or she still gave me the same grade. But she really wanted to know what the author meant. And that's the right thing. She just didn't word it properly at that time. Great teacher. She was one of my favorite teachers in, in, in college, actually. Uh, very, very fun class. Love learning literature from Dr. Priest. She, she did a very good job of teaching, except for that one little thing, but don't let her listen to this. Okay, so anyway, the author has an intent behind what he writes or what she writes. We're supposed to convey a message through our writing, and it's not up for debate. We may feel a certain way about it, but that doesn't change the author's intent. And that's what this passage is, is, is getting at. That this comes from God. It's not open for our interpretation. There is a proper interpretation. And that's the interpretation that we're all supposed to arrive at. Amen? Amen. And so the scribes say that these scriptures come from God. Secondly, these scribes say that they taught and lived by the highest ethic. Now, this is their, their testimony. That we believe these words are from God. That the scripture is from God. And to prove it, look at our lives. And so their lives demonstrate a very different ethic. They lived by a very high calling, a very high standard that set them apart from everyone else who was writing other things at that time. Does that make sense? So you look at the things that are coming out of their mouth. This is God's Word. Now look at our lives and see if our lives give evidence to what we're saying we think this is, this is telling us. Does that make sense? So for us, that would mean if we claim to love Jesus, if we claim to be a Christian, our life had better line up with what God says is true about a Christian. 
And we're going to talk more about that during a later testimony as well. So these scribes say, look to our lives. We teach and live according to a high ethic. It's God's ethic. And that ethic is found throughout the scriptures. But in one place, in Exodus chapter 20, we see a very, very high calling that's upon the lives of followers of God. So turn to Exodus 20. What verse? Someone asked earlier. All of them. All of them. Now, we won't read all of chapter 20, but I just want to take you through a few of these places. So here's the, here's the commandments that we mentioned earlier. And remember, these commandments were literally written by the hand of God, given to Moses. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke. That's some pretty powerful words, right? Then God spoke. So the scribes say, these words are from God. And here they're showing us a place in Scripture where God speaks the words that He wants to convey. So he sa it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he begins to lay out this very high calling, this very high standard. We know him as the Ten Commandments. Now, how many of you have ever told a lie? Raise your hand if you've, if you've ever told a lie. Those of you who aren't raising your hand, you're lying right now, I promise you. And I would, I would, bet, I would bet my life on it. Alright? How many of you have ever stolen anything in your life? Raise your hand. I started early in my criminal enterprise. I was like three or four years old. I stole bubble gum from the store on 40th Street. Alright? And my mama made me take it back. And it was very scary. Because I was like two inches tall at that time. So yes, you stole it? Alright, so if, you, if you've told a lot... Oh, Monty? I stole your canoe. What? What? Oh, I, I sure did. I, oh, do you, do you know that's a true story, Monty? I forgot all about that. When I, oh my, I want to pause this tape here. But when I was lost in high school, I did not know Jesus. I actually stole Monty's canoe. Monty, I forgot all about that. But busted. Guilty as charged. I stole his canoe. I did. And then one of my friends, who was slightly inebriated, flipped it over and sunk the canoe. I didn't seek it, but I did go get my friend out of the water. So that's, that's true. But I did help him steal it. So I confess. I owe you a canoe. Monty, I forgot all about that. I'm as convicted as a man can be right now. That is absolutely true. I did forget. I forgot. I, I did. Wow, Monty didn't. The Monty didn't forget. All right, Monty, we're gonna make this. We're gonna make this right later. We should pray right now in camp. We need to. We need to done. We need to be done right now. Um, but that's true. But that was before Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. I've got a. I've got one that will stole from me. So I'll get it back and I'll give it to you. All right. <laughs> that's not true. We kind of basically gave it to him. I think so. He's just, he's just keeping the bottom from drying out. Anyway, if you've ever told a lie, that makes you a liar. liar. If you've ever stolen anything, that makes you a stealer. a stealer or a thief, as we commonly call them today, right? A stealer or a thief. So let's look at a couple of these others. It says, um, let's just jump down to 13. You shall not murder. How many of you have ever murdered anyone? I didn't stop it. I got nothing to hide. I mean, that's... Yes, I stole Monty's canoe when I was a lost teenager. So, but that was before Jesus. So I'm just making sure you get this in the recording. Before Jesus. 
So, I confess, now I repent. Please forgive me again, Monty. <laughs> so, if, have any of you ever murdered anyone? No. Yeah. So, how many of you have ever murdered someone in your heart, in your mind? Have you ever been angry with someone yet? So what Jesus would say in Matthew 5 through 7, where we're going to look in a little while, is that if you thought about those kind of thoughts about someone, you've actually murdered them in your heart. So we're really all guilty of murder as well. So now we're lying, stealing murderers, okay? But the list goes on. And so it shows that, that I mean, if you bear false witness, I mean, that's, that's again, lying. If, you, uh, if you've um, uh, 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 disobeyed your parents, we're supposed to honor our parents. I mean, all these different commandments. And, and it's not just those ten. He, he breaks down a few other things as well thereafter. But we see that this ethic is different than the world. The world says that there's such a thing as a white lie, as if that's better than a different colored lie. I mean, how ridiculous is that? I think that's racist. That's a racist kind of lie, right? That's racism. A lie is a lie. Amen? A lie is a lie. There's no good kind of lie. A lie is a lie. So, so that's a different ethic. Now turn to Matthew, like we mentioned. I really thought this would go a little quicker, but Monty's up there throwing... throwing uh, Throwing stones at me. At old Kevin. Hey, that guy's gone. He died in 1988. That was old man Kevin. Alright, so Matthew chapter 5. Again. Listen. Matthew 5. We're not going to read all of these three chapters. But I just want you to notice a few things. This is the first recorded sermon of Jesus. And it's three chapters long. But again, we're not going to read all those verses. But just note in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after He sat down, the disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth. So here's God speaking. He opens His mouth. And what? Began to teach them, saying... And then He begins to teach what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Those verses right there, and this other one here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those have to do with our inner person. Blessed are those people who mourn over their sinfulness, is literally what that's speaking of. Blessed are those people who, who um, I missed the first one, who are poor in spirit. They recognize their worthlessness in light of the holiness of God. That's what this beatitude is about. They look at God and see that He's awesome and holy and just and glorious and magnificent. And then they look in the mirror and they see how worthless they are. That's the kind of person that has a kingdom ethic. And that's what we're called to have. We're supposed to see that God is great and that the only good thing about us is God in us if we're Christians. That we have nothing to bring to the table. That doesn't mean that we're worthless. I mean, obviously we're worth something. Or else God would not have sent His Son to die on our behalf. I mean, he, obviously it's for His glory ultimately. But we are of value to God because He died for us and offered us salvation. Amen? That's a good thing. But He didn't do it because we had all this going on. He did it because we got nothing to offer Him. He did it because we need to have this kind of ethic. And this ethic is impossible for us to attain in and of ourselves. So we're going to talk more about that on Thursday. 
And so you go through here and you look at um, like a verse 14 or 13. You're the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. You're supposed to shine for God. This new ethic that you live is supposed to set you apart from the rest of the world. Christians are supposed to be different. You go down to, um, you go down to verse 21. You've heard the ancients say, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And here's what we were getting at earlier. Verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So just, just being angry like that with someone is the same thing as murdering that person in your heart. That's a different standard, is it not? That's a higher ethic. And so these scribes say, God wrote these words. Look at our lives and what we're teaching. We're teaching a higher way of living. Something that's different from the world around us. It's a higher ethic. Christians are supposed to be different. We are supposed to attain to this ethic. The only way we can do that is by... The Lord's help, obviously. But chapter 5, chapter 6 talks about these same things. He actually, in chapter 6, teaches us a prayer of dependency. This is, um, uh, the, it's called the Our Father Prayer, right? Or the Lord's Prayer. Right? I think the Lord's Prayer is in John 17. We've talked about that before. But this is, this is the model prayer. Jesus teaches us dependence and how to come to God. And so this high ethic shows that a person needs God. A person has to come to their end of their rope, right? We were talking about that earlier, Brent. We have to come to the end of ourselves and need for God to do something in our lives. That's a different ethic. The world today teaches the ethic of do everything yourself. Grab it all. Take it all. Get everything you can. Suck everything out of life that you possibly can. That's a different ethic than what Jesus called for. And that's what these scribes point to. Down in uh, chapter 6, verse 25. He talks about the cure for anxiety here. How many of you have been anxious during COVID-19? Anybody care to admit it? What's that? Uh, she says, I've been anxious since I was eight. Is that what you just said? Oh, I thought that's what you just said. But many people are anxious. Many people are anxious, even still today. But here's the cure for anxiety. And what the scribes say is, look at this ethic. Our standard's different. We don't have to respond like everyone else. We have God to depend on. We can go to God and there can be a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's this high ethic. And so if you're ever anxious, Matthew 6 verses 25 through 34 are a good place to go. Maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later. But then chapter 7 contains the most famous verse in, this is the most memorized verse now probably, in all of the world from the Bible. You know what it is? Judge not. Judge not. That's right. Judge not. Judge not. And that's usually where people stop. But if they would read the entire chapter, they would understand that there's only one true kind of judgment that we're supposed to do. It's righteous judgment. That the ethic that we have isn't to judge people based on their appearance or even uh, things that happen to them or, or even things that they might say. We're supposed to judge according to God's judgments. And that's a different kind of judgment. Not the clothes they wear or, or, or any of those things superficial that we tend to judge people based on. We judge oftentimes just on the surface. But God says there's a higher kind of judgment. So look at chapter 7. I just... I want you to see the context of what judgment's supposed to be. 
He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And if we stop there, we'd have to say that there's no judgment that's allowed. Amen? But that's not where it stops. He says, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Do you know when you judge someone based on how they dress, maybe the type of clothes, maybe they don't have as good a clothes as you do or as you think someone else should have. When you judge someone by that, do you know that you set yourself up now to be judged by the same measure? Do you recognize that? That's what this verse says, right? When we judge this way, we're able, uh, or we're therefore now often, or, or, or also rather, judged this way ourselves. But it doesn't stop there either. He says, why do you look at a speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? So you're looking at them going, look what Sean did. All the while, you're doing something way worse than what Sean did. So he says, you've got to look to yourself first. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Or who can, or how can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. If I've got a log sticking out of my eye, do you think I'm going to be able to see very well to help Sean get a speck out of his eye? Do you think I'll be able to help Monty get suntan lotion out of his eyes? <laughs> it won't come out. It won't come out. So look again. Look at verse 5. Look at what he says. You, what's the word? Donnie, y'all talking about this? Jacob, y'all talking about this? What does he say in verse 5? Hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite when you judge. You're supposed to judge rightly. So look what he says in verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's just say, for instance, that PJ has a potty mouth. And he uses four-letter square words all day long. But let's say that Pastor Kevin has a potty mouth too. And Pastor Kevin has been spewing forth the same kind of words out of his mouth all day long. But PJ's potty mouth is bothering me. So I go up to PJ and say, hey man, you need to cut out that language. You got a potty mouth. You need to stop. What kind of judgment is that? It's hypocritical and it's wrong. That's right. I've got to clean up me before I help someone else clean up their life. Amen? That's the standard. That's the ethic. But then he goes on from there. And if you would read the whole chapter, you'll see that in that chapter, Jesus makes no less than three major judgment calls in that chapter. And so he's not saying don't judge at all. He's saying there's a right way to judge. He's going to call someone a dog in just a few verses later. You'll read that. It's pretty awesome. He's calling people dogs based on a righteous judgment. It's not an ugly thing he's doing. He's just calling out people's sin. So we're to judge a certain way. But that's the ethic that he has laid out for us. So in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, we see this new ethic. So, first of all, they claim this word came from God. Secondly, they taught and lived by a high ethic. And here's the last thing. We won't spend a lot of time here, but just note this last thing. And please pay attention to this. They were willing to die for what they believed. They were willing to die for what they believed. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy again. 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy <coughs> chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul is the one who's writing 2 Timothy. Now, when in Paul's life did he write 2 Timothy? Anybody? They don't know? Okay, that's a good, honest answer. 
towards the end of his life, where is he most likely writing 2 Timothy from? Prison. Prison. Okay? Huh? Uh, most likely under house arrest at this time. That's right. But still, he's, he's captured. His, his freedom, though he may have a few liberties, his life does not belong to himself. And so notice what he says here. In chapter, what I say, 4, verse 6, 7, and 8. Look at these verses. Shh, listen. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, I know that sounds kind of archaic to us, and that phraseology may not mean a lot to us, but what he's saying is, I'm already at the end. My life is about to be spilled out at the hands of somebody else. That's basically what he's saying. Look at verse, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. And I have kept the faith. Those are powerful words. Very powerful words. He's at the end of his life. And as he's there, he's not begging for his life. He's not looking for an escape. And yes, he had a little bit of luxury being most likely under house arrest in a house that he was basically paying rent in with guards standing outside. And yet, he did not sneak out the back window or the back door. He didn't try to leave. He was willing to die for his faith. We have his words here written down and saved for us. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Do you know... That there is nothing as important as this life that's being described right here. Your life is wasted. My life is wasted on frivolous pursuits right now. How many of you would say you have spent more than five or six or seven hours a day on video games? I'm with you. Can I tell you in the grand scheme of things, that time is wasted. 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 Binge watching whatever your favorite series on Netflix is. You, you've watched the whole series in a weekend? Shut up. My hands up too. I'm calling me out. You're exposing all of my sins. My hands up too. That, those are hours, countless hours. Listen, countless hours wasted in the grand scheme of things. Wasted. There is a life that is expressed here and it is a different life. It is a high standard life. It's a life that says no to frivolous pursuits and seeks the glory of God in all things. And I would say probably we're all guilty of wasting hours in our days. Amen? So what do these guys say? These scribes? They claim they came from God. They taught and lived a high ethic, the highest ethic, and they were willing to die for what they believed. Look at verse 8 now. Paul says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Those who are longing for the return of Jesus Christ is what he's speaking of. Is that your passion? Is that your pursuit? If not, you are pursuing worthless things. Worthless things. You know what Paul calls it elsewhere? Scubalon. You know what scubalon is? It's poop. It's poop. And we are pursuing scubalon with too many hours of our day. So these scribes said, number one, what? 
This word came from God. We live and teach the highest ethic. And they were willing to die for what they believe. Now, now look at me real quick and listen. Turn and look at me. I want you to see my face for a second. Just because you or I believe something, does that make it true? So does this testimony by itself absolutely definitively prove that the Bible is real? If we're honest, I would say not yet. But it sure is a pretty weighty um, testimony, isn't it? All of these are weighty. But so far, just because science affirms things in the Bible, that doesn't outright wholeheartedly prove that the Bible's true. Just because the people who wrote it really believed it and were willing to die for it, if we're honest, we would still say that doesn't 100% prove that the Bible is real and true and worth living for. But we're going somewhere with this. We're on a path. And we've seen only two of nine proofs, two of nine testimonies. And I guarantee you, when we get to Friday morning, if you're able to say the Bible is not worth it, and then if your life lives that way, you have missed everything we've talked about here today. Not because it's me and my words, but because the evidences are clearly laid out before you. And if you reject those things, you are peril. You're in peril for your very life. And that's a big deal. And I don't take that lightly. And I'm not trying to scare you. But I'm telling you that this is ultimately what life is all about. Our owner's manual is right here. Our instructions of how to assemble ourselves wholly is right here. To be whole, like W-H-O-L-E, but also to be H-O-L-Y. Both of those things are found right here. And if you miss this, you've missed it and you've wasted your life. And I don't want to get to the end of my life. I don't want for you to get to the end of your life and have wasted your life on frivolous pursuits. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time here together at camp. God, we're having a great time. We're working hard. We're playing hard. And now we're studying hard as well. And Lord, I thank you for the attention in this room tonight. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that through your scripture is tweaking and twinging on the hearts of individuals in this very room tonight. God, thank you. I pray that you will help us to build testimony upon testimony upon testimony and have a very sure standing, a very definitive footing and reason for the hope that lies within us and being able then to show others why we believe the Bible is truly God's Word and worth living. And so God, I pray that you would instill that in every single one of us this week. Watch over us, O oh God. Help us not to get sick, to be sunstroked or anything like that. We don't want anyone falling and getting hurt and putting suntan lotion in their eyes anymore. We want to be safe this week so that we can work and play and study for you, Lord God, and for your glory. And so we pray this to that end. In Christ Jesus' holy name, amen.